Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as P.E. Win, We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. P.E. Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of P.E. Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, your host and the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, as well as the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation. I'm incredibly excited about my guest today, Jill Kitazaki, because we've known each other for so long. We've been friends for so many years and have worked together in a variety of fashions. But we also have a passion for ghost stories, and I know that's going to come up somewhere in our interview. So welcome, Jill. I am very excited to have you here today. Thank you, Kelly. And I am so excited to be here and a little nervous. So hearing your voice helps me calm down a little bit. I don't like to promote myself like this. So this is not a comfortable spot for me, but I want to do things that put me in uncomfortable positions because I'm, I was getting a little comfortable. So this is, this is a great exercise. I love this. And of course, our goal is to maybe so much promote you, although I think it's inevitable that will happen because people are always charmed by you whenever they meet you. But it's also meant to be a little revealing. Of course, everybody knows you and your extraordinary career as the leader at Denning & Company, one of the leading placement firms in the country, one that's trusted by GPs and LPs. But I want to roll things back a little bit and start with some key moments in your early life and in particular ask you How and where did you grow up? So most people who know me know that within like maybe five sentences of my introduction, I weave in that I'm from Hawaii. And it it, it sounds silly, but I feel so proud of where I came from. I'm fourth generation Japanese American in from Honolulu, Hawaii. And, you know, I think where I came from informs so much of who I am today. And I guess that's the case with all of your guests. Um, I, I couldn't imagine a more charmed life than growing up in Hawaii in the 70s and the 80s. 
I mean, I literally ran around barefoot wearing terry cloth hang tin shorts. And I just remember summers uh, of just being in the ocean from sunrise to sunset and playing in the mountains just behind my house. There's this Manoa Valley where there's streams and waterfalls. And I literally swung from vines on like from across, you know, the river and swam under these waterfalls. I tell people that I didn't wear shoes until I really was in high school, which is why I have these awful, wide, ugly feet that I try and hide from people. But, you know, aside from the ugly. In, the, in by the way, the most fabulous shoes. Well, <laughs> I can't wear Manolos because they're too narrow for my feet. Aside from the, the ugly feet, it was a pretty special childhood. I felt very lucky to, to be from Hawaii. Well, I think it's a testament to to you and your character that even though you're absolutely right, people do find that out about you within the first few seconds. No one holds it against you because of sort of, of course, it's envy inducing when people hear about this idyllic childhood that you had. And it is, uh, I think, definitely a hallmark of, of your personality and who you are and how you're so able to make people at ease so quickly. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what it was like growing up in a, you know, a fourth generation family that had such a long history in Hawaii and, and also having, you know, as you say, part of the Japanese culture intertwined within that. What, what are some of the unique things you remember about growing up? Well, I'm an only child, which probably explains a lot about me, but I also grew up with so many family members all around me. So I grew up in a three-generational household. My grandparents, my parents, and I all lived under one roof. And that was pretty much the case from, you know, the day I was born. My great-great-grandparents came to Japan in the 1800s. They were laborers. Everybody worked in the sugarcane plantation. And even like my mom's generation, my mom and my aunts and uncles all worked, you know, as kids pulling pineapple from the, you know, from the pineapple plantation. And to this day, my mom can't even smell pineapple without wincing. And we grew up, I grew up in a really kind of lower middle class family. You don't ever notice that you don't have a lot of money in Hawaii because, you know, it's, that's just not necessarily how people were back then. We were all in it together. And I just remember being surrounded by family and fun and, you know, just like a lot of love. I didn't actually know that I was Japanese, honestly, uh, because when you grow up in Hawaii, it's such a melting pot. And so you're with friends that look like you and we're all sharing the same customs and cultures. That is really kind of a melting pot of all of these, these cultures. And it really wasn't until I went away and actually lived in Japan where I was like, wow, this is the food that my grandmother used to make. And all these people have like my hair or my face. I'm like, I'm Japanese. It was like a, sounds really silly, but it was a real revelation to me. And I didn't realize this until I was an adult. And I also think that growing up in a place where, you know, I didn't feel different from people. I felt like I was part of the majority. I, in fact, you know, being Asian in Hawaii, you kind of are part of the majority in Hawaii. I just, I, I just never thought of myself as, as Asian per se. I don't, I, it's really hard to explain, but I, I think about just not feeling any type of prejudice in, when I was growing up and just really a naive outlook on the world, which actually is, is, is pretty beautiful. 
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that's that's really an extraordinarily blessed upbringing. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about your family and and how how you grew up in this broader family community. I remember when I went to live in Japan and went to college there and living in these multi-generational households, I I realized, wow, you know, I'm Italian. The Italians and the Japanese are very similar in that. You know, it's it was nothing to us to have our great-grandparents and our grandparents and our you know, our parents, all our aunts and uncles, all of our cousins together, you know, when I grew up, my parents didn't have friends outside of the family. All the social socialization in our house came with our family, even on both sides, not just the Italian side. That really resonates with me when I hear you describe that because it sounds very familiar. And then I think the other thing that we share in common is that the women in the family were very strong. And I think about my grandmother. I never knew my great grandmother. My mother, my aunts, I mean, they are just, they work so hard and just have really strong work ethic that that's just a really important attribute to have. Well, I bet that flows through a lot of the women who are in our industry, probably having mothers who are strong and hardworking and regardless of what, where and how they work, and then fathers who recognize the strength of their daughters and, you know, support that. So given, given that upbringing, given that incredible, gosh, beautiful family life that you had, what was your first job? When did you actually sort of step out of, you know, running around barefoot and swinging on vines and, and actually go out and get a job? So my first job was working in my grandfather's repair shop, answering the phones and running out and grabbing lunch. This is in the summers. And just kind of helping with paperwork. And that was really interesting to just see my family dynamic in a family business. And, uh, and th- my second job, my real, real job, honestly, that I got on my own was uh, being a camp counselor at a volleyball camps around the country. My volleyball, I played volleyball. My volleyball coaches in high school were Olympians from Hawaii. And so they were highly sought after by other uh, volleyball camps around the around the country. So I worked summers at like Lamoni, Iowa, with these volleyball camps, and uh, had a blast because it, I I got to play volleyball and I got to meet a lot of you know young women all around the country who were passionate about my sport. Wow. Well, you know, a lot of people in PEWIN know my niece Lindsay, who is like my daughter, and she was a volleyball player as well. And I remember. One year, uh, one summer, we gave her the option of uh, going to volleyball camp somewhere, and she chose Pepperdine. And they had a great volleyball camp there. Maybe you, you've you been there. And I remember going out there and seeing that campus and said, how does anyone actually get their schoolwork done? I mean, it's so incredibly beautiful there. Um, it really was spectacular. But I, I, as you said, I guess it gave you the opportunity to see a lot of different places in the country. Yes. And I definitely did my stint as the barista at the local coffee shop near the university. So met all kinds of interesting intellectuals. And yeah, so I, we, we, I think there's also a theme around service industry as being really informative on, uh, on service and connection with people. And client service. Yeah, client service, yeah, yeah. exactly. I think that's, that's absolutely right. So, so talk a little bit about how you made your way to private equity. Sure. Like a lot of things, just randomly. But I, I think one thing that I would say about just my childhood and that the, the theme to, to today 
is that I think I was probably ADHD. That's where my son gets it. I talked nonstop and drove like my family members crazy because I was always talking to them about something and just talked to strangers, anybody who would want to have a conversation with me. And I almost got kicked out of preschool. I always got in trouble in middle school and high school because, you know, the teacher's trying to teach and I'm busy having a conversation with my classmates. And I mentioned that just because what I do today is so much of who I am just at my core. But I had a job that was really odd right out of college, and it was doing counter trade deals after the Berlin Wall had fallen. And it was taking metals out of Russia and Kazakhstan and some of the other stands and converting that into hard currency on the spot market and then doing counter trade deals. So thinking about like rebuilding, you know, Soviet Union countries. And for the first time, they had access to technology and equipment from the U.S. and Europe without restriction. And so we were doing the craziest counter trade deals. So generating hard currency and sending back supercomputers or John Deere earth moving equipment. Or in my case, I had this project for vodka. <laughs> for whatever reason, Russia couldn't produce vodka because they couldn't get the glass to the factory or they couldn't get the potatoes to the factory. And so they needed vodka from us. And this is not my proudest moment. I was only 23, but I ended up project managing this whole project around getting vodka to Russia. And that was challenging because, it, you know, vodka is glass and it's primarily water and it's really heavy and expensive to transport. So I came up with this bright idea to do grain alcohol because I had just graduated from college and put it in a PET <laughs> bottle. Thank God it wouldn't disintegrate, you know, within a year. But PET is not the best thing to store grain alcohol in. And I came up with my own company name, American Spirits Vodka. I don't think that would I would have made any kind of, you know, trademark case, but we were able to do it. I did a label and we shipped off millions and millions of liters of grain alcohol through Helsinki to Russia. And that was when I realized like, wow, you could really figure things out. You can problem solve and do really interesting things. Again, not my most proud moment. And that's where I realized like, you know, the power of, of just being creative. And so that kind of set me down a path of wanting to be in the middle of a transaction. And I moved to San Francisco and the job that I got randomly was to be a equities trader. I was a terrible equities trader. So my, it, that, that way I would say would be my, one of my biggest failures. I think I'm dyslexic and have ADHD, but we were never diagnosed back then. And like the bid ask spread, all of that was just so hard for me to do under pressure and at, you know, four in the morning. And I lasted two years. But what I did love about it was that I had to convince my portfolio manager on, you know, at, at a hedge fund or public manager why they should think about a stock that my research analyst told me about. I had to do it in like two seconds and make a case, but I was still communicating and trying to, you know, sell something. And that's kind of how uh, I figured out that maybe I could do fundraising for private equity. And so someone introduced me to Paul Denning um, from the trading desk, and he was just starting a business within Hambrickton Quist of raising third party capital and uh, Hambrickton Quist uh, funds. And so I had a meeting with him. He liked my background. He had a trading background. 
and he gave me an offer. I did not know anything about private equity or venture capital, and I got started. And he basically opened up his Rolodex and introduced me to all the great allocators of that time. And that's like Katie Stokel and Sally Shooping Russell and Diana Frazier. These are a lot of great women, you know, uh, Astrid Noltemi, Barbara Lynch. I mean, just I could go on and on. And they were so kind to me and so patient because I didn't really know what I was doing and really helped me in my career. And the first two funds that I worked on were Index Ventures, which is now a household name in the industry, and what was the precursor to Patango Ventures in Israel. And so I think just really early on, it was great to imprint on what, you know, terrific managers look like, you know, at, at, in a very early part of their, of their lives. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, it sounds to me like you were lucky that you figured out early on that your superpowers were problem solving and persuasion, which I think they're great powers to have in whatever you do, but certainly in private equity, having those two powers really can help you advance. And, and you're, you're so lucky that you very early in your career, you found your way to Paul and to Denning, because yeah. obviously, you know, the two of you have had tremendous success and have really taken the the company to be a market leader. But what do you think, to what do you attribute the fact that you you have spent your career there and, and have worked so, so closely alongside of Paul over time to build the business? Well, Paul has created an environment for people to really flourish. And he's, you know, he's not someone who's micromanaging. It's like, if you can, if you are proving that you can get it done, you know, he really gives you a lot of rope. This is, I should say, early on in my career when I was his associate at Hamburgton Quist. And I, I think he created an environment for us to work with people, only the people that we truly wanted to work with and who we believed in, as opposed to, you know, being told to raise capital for certain groups. And very early on, I was part of the decision-making process of who we worked with and how we worked with them. And, you know, we shared the same ethos on what is it to be a really good partner and salesperson in this industry and taking a really long-term view on the sales process. So Paul's like a big-time Dale Carnegie, you know, disciple and old-school sales, uh, which he always said, look, before you ask for one thing, you got to give them five things. I just, I feel that we were so aligned in how we thought about people, the world, and what our place in the value chain of private equity was. And so it was just really easy to work with him. And, and today I still, he's very productive and has so many great nuggets of, of advice. And, you know, he'll talk with anybody on an airplane. I think I like to talk to people. He'll talk with anybody on the airplane and he'll come home got back to the office and just be like, talk about who he talked to and all the interesting insights he got from that conversation. He's just always intellectually curious. And I think that's an incredible trait. I agree. I just, I think being curious and interested in other people is so essential. I mean, I always say, and I think this, I attribute this to my legal training. I, I really like to hear what other people have to say, even if I know I don't agree with them. I know they have an opinion or a viewpoint or a value system that's different than mine. 
I think as a lawyer, I it's more powerful to know what the other side thinks because it makes you a better negotiator, makes your arguments stronger. But I, I, the other thing I love that you said is, you know, before you ask anybody for one thing, give them five things. And that, that's one of the things I always tried to impart to you know, young people on my team. They would understand, would not understand why I would have the team spending so much time doing work and research for a client before they ever even became a client. And they would think, you know, like, we're spending a fortune here and you're doing this. And, and I'm like, look, why would someone give you tens or hundreds of millions of dollars if you haven't invested in them first? Yeah. And in our industry, there are so many, the people who are the allocators are often the, the people who, who get the least compensation in our whole system and in many ways are taking the most risk because they're taking a risk on you with large pools of capital. And so you really have to take the time to invest in them and give them something of value that makes them look smart for having cho chosen you as their partner. It seems like common sense, but it's surprising that a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. So I want to ask a question that I think everybody, certainly all the women who appear on Moments That Made Her have, have experienced, but are there times in your career when you've been made to feel particularly aware of the fact either that you're a woman or that you're an Asian American? Oh, yeah. You know, I was thinking about this and I, I you know, going back and it, again, it sounds kind of naive, but I think growing up in Hawaii, like slightly blissfully unaware, I'm sure there have been so many infractions that I just like haven't internalized or kind of brushed off. And I think of it in a positive way in that uh, I've been surrounded by such great women. And so it's been really a positive indication for me to be a woman. I remember one of my managers who, you know, great guy. I mean, like, you know, not a bad bone in his body. I had to drive him down to Palo Alto to a meeting with um, one of the foundations. And, you know, I drove him down and we, we, we pull up, we park. And he looks at me straight in the eye and goes, wow, you're a much better driver than I thought. You know, this type of Asian women drivers. And I was like, oh, yeah, he was serious about that. And I just laughed so hard after that. And I, I told Paul and we just had a good chuckle. Wow, that's a good one. Well, I have I have I have an interesting one that kind of runs both ways. So. I, as you might imagine, since I spent time in Japan, I, when my, throughout my career, I've worked with Japanese clients. And when I was practicing law, was doing a deal with a Japanese bank and communicating back with the home office in Tokyo. And they sent a letter to me. This was at the very beginning of email, actually. And it was addressed to Mr. William, Mr. Kelly Williams. And I was like, oh, <laughs> of course, you know, Japanese, they're very, you know, Male oriented, um, I, you know, so I was taking it as a slight as a woman. So then when we finally met at the closing dinner, they were very sheepish when they met me and found out that I was a woman. And they apologized. And I, you know, of course, I said it was fine. But then they explained to me that they had actually researched my name and it was had a male, you know, had a, had a male. Uh, derivation. And it's true. Kelly means brave warrior in Gaelic. 
And so I thought, oh my gosh, you know, they actually took the time to figure it out. They didn't just make an assumption that if they were dealing with someone in the U.S., it must be a male. Right. And so, so that was, that was bad on me. I made an assumption, thought they had, you know, were insulting me. I actually, my assumption was wrong, but um, yeah, I always think of that one because that, that's one that sort of a, you know, I got offended and it actually backfired on me because they were far more thoughtful than I was. I, I have a funny um, story like that, too. And, you know, hopefully this doesn't put us too over. But I was in uh, at Hamburton Quist and, you know, I was on the investment banking floor and there was this hotshot kid from, you know, XYZ, you know, great business school. And he was kind of the, 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 the golden haired boy in the organization, but a really nice guy. He came one day into my office and we were just chit chatting. And, you know, I had some plants and stuff and my, you know, I tried to make my office my place. And he goes, so, hey, Jill, do you have a mister? And I was like, mister? He goes, yeah, do you have a mister? And I'm like, what do you, I, I looked at him, I'm like, man, how, you know, where we live and in this day and age, why would you ask me that? Like, why wouldn't I have a missus, you know? And I was like all indignant. And he looked at me, he goes, no, no, for your plants, I'm, I'm a mister. Your plants are looking a little dead. And I was so embarrassed. I, I mean, I could not look at this guy in the eye after that. That is hysterical, but I completely understand why. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you know, I just think that, you know, again, as, as women, we get our backs up because we're, it's so often the other side, right? It's so often that we are being either openly or sort of subtly insulted that, you know, you sort of are, you're, you're, you're uh, preparing yourself for it, but that's a really funny story. Yeah. I love that I one. I really took his People head off. Enjoy yeah. that. Oh my gosh. Well, with that, we'll take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be back shortly with Jill Kitazaki. We would like to take a brief break to thank PE Wins founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest. Hi, everyone. It's Kelly Williams. I am back at Moments That Made Her with my guest, Jill Kitazaki from Denning & Company. We've been having a great rollicking conversation, as I knew I knew we would. And I want to ask you, what would you consider the high point of your career to date? Obviously, your career is going to go on and on and on. But is there a particular high point you would point to? Well, I would say that every time we close a fund, of a group that, you know, we're just so excited about. That's a high point. So that's lucky because I get to have those, you know, knock on wood over and over. Fingers crossed. I loved being on stage with you and Robin Painter, getting a Trailblazer Award for the Women in Private Equity Summit as founding sponsors of that conference a few years ago. It was great to be up there with you. You guys have accomplished so much. And I was, I just felt really lucky to be there with you. I feel high points all the time. I I feel really lucky to have a positive attitude just about how lucky I am to be in this industry. And, you know, I tell people all the time that I 
when I started, all the people that I met like you and so many others uh, in PUN, we just all grew up together and really benefited from, you know, being a community. And so anyway, I, I feel high points all the time. And I also have some low points too. And I, I don't know if that, if it's appropriate to talk about them and, and some, just some major fumbles and some funny ones too. Would it be appropriate to give you an example? Yeah, no, we're definitely going to get to that. In fact, um, that is, uh, that is one of our upcoming conversations oh, and questions. I'm jumping um, the gun. But I, no, 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 it's totally fine. But I do want to stop on this point because as you said, you and Robin and I were very instrumental in the early days of Beth Falk uh, designing the Women's Private Equity Summit. And I think for each of us who, you know, incredibly important um, uh, sort of role models in the industry and took our role very seriously, the opportunity to work with Beth and support her to design what became a really unique convening of women. And it was a place where so many of us felt uh, safe. We felt heard. Uh, we felt appreciated. And we were genuinely happy to see each other in a world where there's a lot of conferences you go to where you go, but you're just not happy to be there. It was such a such a special thing to be able to be part of. And as you said, it really cemented a lot of relationships that I think we likely would not have had, but for the fact that we knew that we had this conference every year that we could go to where we would see these incredible women. And I think as a result, many of us have developed some of our closest friendships as a result. And it was also that first convening that became the jumping off point for P.E. Witt. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and then maybe just taking it back a little bit. So I remember the call that, you know, you and Robin were on a conference call and Beth was on the call and you called me and we had a really great chat about what Beth was thinking about with the conferences, you know, a year or two out before the first one in 2008. And, you know, you made, you both made a compelling case for why you were supporting the conference and it was just super easy to jump on. But even before that, and I don't know if you remember these, but we were doing all these fun ad hoc dinners. So we would be in New York or we would be in San Francisco and maybe Tokyo or Hong Kong. And there were just so many wonderful women in the industry. And it was just very easy to say, hey, we're going to be in XYZ City. Why don't we get together for dinner? And all of a sudden we'd have 14 or 15 people who would raise their hand and we'd have these really wonderful uh, dinner parties around the world, wherever we were for a conference. And that became sort of the blueprint for what Beth wanted to do with the Women in Private Equity Summit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I always say there's no diminution in the desire of women to get together because it is, you know, although there are more of us in the industry, it is still a more rare occurrence <laughs> that we see each other and, and get a chance to work together. And I just think that, you know, there's such a desire to understand the commonality of our experience and to know that there are people there who support them. And so, yeah, I, I do remember our, our fun and casual dinners. And I remember how, how much we all felt committed to being together as part of the summit and then also as part of PEWIN. You know, those two things really kind of dovetailed and, and started at the same time. And of course, this year, 
we celebrated Beth because it was her her last one as the leader, having sold the company. And we had our wonderful PEWIN pajama party where you and I finally got a chance to talk ghost stories, which we're both really passionate about. And I know from having lived in Japan that ghosts are a very important part of Japanese culture. Same in, you know, in Italy. And it, Italians are very superstitious and we believe there are things moving around all of the time. But that's definitely something you and I bonded over. For sure. Hawaii has a lot of ghosts and my dad loves scaring me when I was a little kid with ghost stories. So yeah, I uh, I, I love telling them. I love hearing them. And uh, And Kelly, you have some fantastic ones, by the way. I just, I yeah. feel like thinking yeah. of them and I have like, you know, goosebumps. Uh, in Hawaii, we call them, it's chicken skin. It's these goosebumps, yeah. just thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, or fortunately, mine are true. So um, yes, they are yeah. are a little scary. But, uh, but for those of you who haven't heard them, make sure you come to uh, one of the PUN pajama parties and we'll share them with you. Well, now as you, as you sort of uh, were referring to, I did want to ask you a question about moments where maybe things didn't work out the way you had hoped. Things have gone a little sideways. Maybe it was a failure and what those were. And then how did you respond to them? And did they provide a teachable moment? Yeah, I think I referenced not being a good trader. You know, the sort of the equities trading, being in a pretty hostile environment, waking up in the middle of the night to go to your job and 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 just not getting enough sleep. I think that I recognized, one, I wasn't good at it. And two, I just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a good situation. I need to get myself out of it. But it was, you know, it's a real bummer knowing that you're not good at something and that you have to walk away. I also had a similar thing where I was, uh, you know, at Hamburton Quiz, raising capital with Paul. And then we got acquired by Chase and then JP Morgan. And the world changed a little bit with, with our model. And so I ended up leaving JP Morgan and working with a private equity fund, which I learned so much about, but it also didn't go my way because the market, you know, was 2000. The market changed quite radically by 2001 and 2002. What I didn't like about it was that I couldn't advocate as well for the limited partner in that seat. And, and this is more, I would say, specific to the, this private equity firm versus, you know, other firms where I have friends who are in the role of fundraiser and, and investor relations and have incredible amount of uh, influence in their organizations. But I felt that I wasn't representing the LP in, in, the, in the way that I wanted to, and that I was taking sort of the terms or the attitudes of the partners and having to convey that to the LP. And that just didn't sit right with me. So, you know, I had to leave that situation. And it really made me think about me as a fundraiser, as a third-party fundraiser versus being in-house. So, you know, it, I think of it as, as a real learning moment, but also, you know, a failure on my part because I, I couldn't make that work. You've made an interesting distinction between in-house fundraising and third-party fundraising. And, of course, when you are in-house, you are you know, completely devoted to that firm and the products being developed by that firm. Whereas when you're a third party fundraiser, 
you almost have a responsibility to the market because you're working with multiple funds and you're working with investors. And I can certainly see your personality and your holistic approach to relationships being more, not that you wouldn't be good at both. You're obviously great at both, but I do think it's important to be able to advocate for the position of the person on the other side. Uh, again, speaking as somebody, as a lawyer who likes to think I can argue both sides of an issue, I do really think that understanding and having some empathy for the other side actually makes you stronger and makes your relationship with the other person stronger. I actually read a really interesting uh, little story this morning on Instagram where a woman shared that she grew up in a very humble, uh, humble home. And had neighbors who lived next door who had less than she did. And her mother went over to their house one day and asked to borrow some salt. And she came home and she said to her mother, why did you do that? We have salt. And she said, you know, our neighbors don't have very much. And they, they ask for things from us all the time. They borrow things. And she said, I, I didn't want them to feel constantly in our debt. I wanted them to feel that there was kind of reciprocity in the relationship so that they wouldn't be deterred from asking us from help for help in the future. And I just thought, wow, I just love that example because I think in everything we do, we have to keep in mind that it's a two-way street. Yeah. And we have to think about how are we giving something, it gets back to the point we made before, how are we investing in these relationships and how are we making sure that people feel that there is a real give and take? Yeah, absolutely. That That's a beautiful story. And my husband has this golden rule where if someone shares something, you know, that's a little deeper, more personal with him, then he's obliged to do that back. <laughs> so just to, you know, just to make that person not feel odd about sharing something that's personal. And, and I always thought that was really insightful of him as well. Yeah, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. Well, so now we're, we've come to one of my favorite parts of uh, Moments That Made Her, which is our lightning round. And so I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions and get a, get a quick answer from you. And starting off with, what is a great book you've read, to, read or listened to recently? Or what's your guilty pleasure television show? Okay. Well, I have two, both the guilty pleasure and the book. I actually love historical nonfiction. I, I don't have a I wish I had more time to read, but I love historical nonfiction. And there's a book that everybody should read, especially if they are uh, in healthcare or medicine, called The Doctor's Blackwell. And it's about the these two sisters, Emily and Elizabeth, or Elizabeth and Emily Blackwell, who were the first and third women in the United States to get a medical degree. And this is in the eighteen, you know, mid eighteen hundreds. And they couldn't practice anywhere, so they had to open up their own hospital to teach other women and it was for the care of women and children. And it's, uh, it was on Waverly place in, uh, the West village. I'm biased because it was written by this woman named Janice Nimora, who's married to the CEO of a large family office in New York. And she actually was a finalist and a Pulitzer prize winner for this work. I love her because she finds these very obscure women in history that no one knows about, but were so important 
like, you know, Emily and, and Elizabeth Blackwell, and she did this other book called Daughters of the Samurai of Women in Japan who have this incredible story. So I highly recommend it. Uh, I am also reading Beginner's Guide to the End, which is actually sounds pretty dark, but it's, you know, Death for Dummies Handbook. It's just good hygiene for preparing for the inevitable for yourself and maybe for your, your parents, your, your family members. Um, and my guilty, guilty pleasure is reading People magazine while getting my nails done or Ted Lasso while folding the laundry. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Well, I, I love the two books that you, you mentioned. I knew about Elizabeth Blackwell, but I didn't know about her sister, Emily. So that's actually an interesting twist on that story. And I'm also a big believer in sort of, you know, hygiene around death. I think it's one of the conversations that we as Americans don't do a good job of. Other cultures do. And it's a more natural conversation. I remember talking to my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, and trying to convince her to, to have a will because my great-grandparents didn't have a will. And then, you know, she didn't have a will. And I just knew when she passed away, it was going to be a mess because there were multiple brothers and sisters and cousins and property. And, and she refused. She did not want to have that conversation because she felt it was like invoking danger if she, if she even talked about it. So that I completely agree. It's a, it's a healthy thing to do. And then I, you know, I have a reputation for knowing all of the minutiae about celebrities. And I just caught up on Ted, Ted Lasso last night. So we are, we are absolutely simpatico on that. Uh, so what's your cell phone wallpaper? Oh, it, I think like a lot of the people that you've interviewed, it's, it's kids and it's like a rotating one. So it's never the same one when I look at it. And it always makes me smile. Yeah, I agree. I have uh, my niece's kids on here and they're, they're just make me smile too. Um, so if you had a career other than private equity, what would it be? Yes, that's a great question. I, I am pretty sure that I would either be a professional matchmaker. I have made a couple of successful matches. Actually, the, the two matches that I've made resulted in marriage, long-term marriage and kids. So I am actually godparents to those children. And if I wasn't doing that, I think I would really, I, I would really like to be an executive recruiter, hopefully within private equity, but an executive recruiter, because I feel that it's, it's adjacent to matchmaking, you know, kind of close to what, what I do now. Yeah, very much so. Well, as you were saying that, I, I was wondering if you also watch Mrs. Maisel. Oh, I love Mrs. Maisel. I want to be her mom. Well, the whole... Oh, my God. And her mom is the matchmaker, yeah. right? That's and that's such a great, great storyline. I love the scene in the prison. That's just my oh. one of my favorite uh, episodes from that show. But OK, that's that's how I'm imagining you. And so are you a dog or a cat person? Well, truth is, cats hate me. So I've never been able to attract cats. And therefore, I am a dog person. And I've always been a dog person since I was a little kid. You know, don't tell anybody, but we have a little dog and that dog sleeps in our bed every night. And, you know, she's like my third child. I, I just absolutely love her. Yeah. No, our dog is the same way. I, I was not going to allow her to sleep in the bed, but my husband is a sucker. So uh, she sleeps in the bed. And so what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? You, you shared some advice early, earlier in the conversation, but 
Is there anything else that you would share? Yeah. My favorite piece of advice was from Ariana Huffington, which is sleep your way to the top, literally. And I think it is just so funny because most of the women that I know, and you are definitely guilty of this, are uh, way too late and sending emails and texts like literally in the middle of the night. I know. And I'm like, where the heck is Kelly? Because it's like 12 o'clock at night here, which means it's three in the morning in New York. And, you know, it's it's like we're having a conversation as if it's, you know, 11 in the morning. So none of my friends, none of the people I know get enough sleep. So sleep your way to the top, ladies. I love that from Ariana Huffington. And one that Paul Denning always says is uh, the power of positive thinking and willing things to happen. And I, I do think that there's so much research around how the brain works and why this is such a true statement and such a great piece of advice. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I was telling somebody the other day that for some reason, I routinely wake up between two and three in the morning and I have a whole group of friends that that happens to as well. So we have like, you know, a text chain at the two to three in the morning and you get an answer like right away. So that, that tells you that you're you're not alone. This is happening to more than just you. Everybody's up. Everybody's up. All right. The last question I want to ask you is, what's one thing we don't know about you yet? Well, I think people know this about me, but I am a real klutz and I am prone to mishaps. And I have lots of examples of this and how it impacts work. But I don't know if you remember this, but in one of our dinners in New York, we were coming up on an elevator to the mezzanine level to go to our private dining room. And they were like, I don't know, we were maxed out in that elevator. Maybe there were like 10 of us in that elevator. You. Robin, me, and I was kind of at the front of the elevator. The elevator doors open. And of course, it's not a line. So I take one step and spill like spread eagle in front of all of you as we're walking into this dinner. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Maybe wow. you, you struck it from your memory. And Maybe. <laughs> another, another one was I was on a flight from Boston uh, back to San Francisco. And Jennifer Erden was on my flight from Cambridge. And, you know, she I didn't know her as well, but she was very senior at Cambridge. We were walking off the plane. And this is kind of gross, but sometimes like on a flight for my ears, I'll have a piece of gum in my mouth and I don't necessarily like to chew gum. And I certainly don't like to show people that I chew gum. So I kind of stuffed it on the roof of my mouth. And as we were talking and walking off the plane, she said something that made me laugh. And so I was like, ha. Huh. And as I laughed, the gum got dislodged from the roof of my mouth and went flying like a projectile missile right for her head. And she had to oh, duck yeah. quickly so that it didn't hit her square in the eyes. And oh my gosh, I was so mortified that that had happened. And we like looked at each other in shock and she just buckled laughing. I mean, it was <laughs> so embarrassing. And I have, I have one more, believe it or not. I mean, I have many, but with people you know, Katie Stokel was with her family in Hawaii because they had the Hawaii account at Abbott. And we happened to be on the Big Island at the same time. And we realized that we were going to be right next to each other. So she came over to our place where we were staying and her kids were really young, her husband, and they all went swimming in this, you know, saltwater pool where you could go snorkeling and see fish. And I was sitting on the raft in a bathing suit and a bikini on in the middle of this, you know, saltwater 
pool. And one of her kids was with me. Her husband was down with snorkeling uh, equipment. And I'm like, last one in is a rotten egg. And we all jump off of the, uh, of the, of the raft. There was a nail sticking out and that nail caught my bathing suit bottom. And literally when I jumped into the water, I felt a rush of cold water on my backside. And my whole bathing suit was stuck on the uh, raft. And Peter was, you know, snorkeling underneath me. And I was so embarrassed. And poor Katie was like, oh, my God, she had to come over to me with the towel because it was completely indecent. Oh, my God. So those are the kinds of things that happened to me, Kelly. I never in a million years would have guessed that you were prone to these things. But it is, you know, because and I, I, I really am so grateful for you to share that because you are always so beautiful and so well turned out and so elegant. And I'm sure that's intimidating to a lot of people. And just knowing that you're you're just a regular person who has these mishaps is, uh, I think, heartwarming. And I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to share that with everybody. Oh, I, I mean, it, 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 it's uh, there's many more. So anybody that wants to hear more stories, please let me know. Well, on that note, I, I love leaving on a good chuckle. So thank you. This has been a great conversation. We obviously could go on for hours, but I want to thank you, Jill Kitazaki, for being my guest today on Moments That Made Her. Thank you, Kelly. It's so wonderful to spend any amount of time with you. And this has been a blast. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Wynn and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.